Father, we do ask that you would give us faith to believe. Father, it's, it's known to everyone here how easy it is for us to take things for granted. It's so easy for us to hear and yet not hear. It's easy for us to see and yet not see. Don't let that happen to us this morning, Lord. Give us eyes that clearly see. Give us ears that hear well. That we might that we might believe our Savior and love Him. And so we ask this in His wonderful name. Amen. This is what Paul's writing about and what we've, I hope, as Christians, been pondering for the past few days and months is the, the, italicize that or underscore that or highlight it, however you do it, the event of history. Now there are other events of history, but this is the event. This is the, the pivotal point. This is the crux. This is the center of history. And so I hope this morning as we come to something of a culmination of this month's uh, considerations from prophetic passages to the narrative uh, to this week, Paul's theological delvings into this great mystery. I hope our minds are, are driven to heights of contemplation that we might, in fact, be staggered by who Jesus is because it really is remarkable, isn't it? The second person of the Godhead, eternal, and yet he was willing to come to this earth and take on human nature, human will, human mind, human flesh. And it didn't taint him. Disproving the Greeks who thought matter was evil, It's a remarkable thing. Perhaps some of you have sat here and you've heard this message for all your life and you've never been struck by whew, what a grand and amazing message this is. Our hearts should be driven to depths of examination and our souls ought to be warmed in devotion to our great Savior when we think about him. So hopefully, by the time we're finished today, you will. God the Son voluntarily condescended to earth for the sake of arresting normal, sinful thoughts, restoring minds to thoughts eternal, delivering creation from her fallen groans. That's how broad-scoped his work was and is. We've seen that before. He didn't just come to save people from their sin, but he came to save the world, the whole created order, to reverse the curse. And not only to save us from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. 
So when you're tempted to sin, you don't have to. That's what it means to be saved from the power of sin. This passage Paul uh, sets forth here, anticipated, in fact, it provided some of the foundation for our Westminster divines, those theologians, scholars, pastors who labored for those four, five, six years in the 1640s to produce what's been reckoned to be the, the grandest doctrinal standard in the history of man the Westminster Confession of Faith, along with the catechism so that children and adults could be trained up in the, in the holy religion of the Scriptures. And this passage, I'm going to divide it, at least for our purposes this morning, verses 5 through 11, uh, as the uh, shorter and larger catechism would divide it. And we're going to talk about the humiliation of Christ, we're going to talk about the exaltation of Christ. The humiliation you see there begins in verse 5, uh, actually verse 6, speaking of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to death, death on a cross. the humiliation of Christ. And then, therefore, God has highly exalted him, the exaltation of Christ. So that's how I want us to look at it this morning. But in preface to that, I want to read the two questions of the Shorter Catechism and remind us how important this is. Humiliation and exaltation of Christ begins uh, in question 23. What offices does Christ execute as a Redeemer? Christ, as our Redeemer, executes the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and a king. Now that part you could have probably come up with if you know your catechism much at all. And had I primed you on it, you would have said uh, the, the three offices of Christ, the prophet, priest, and king. But here, both, he executes his offices of prophet, priest, and king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. He was king in his humiliation. We sometimes only think of his kingship in terms of exaltation, right? Ascending to heaven, to the right hand of the Father, exalted. But no, the scriptures teach us otherwise. He was king in his humiliation. Jesus said that, didn't he? To Pilate, you're a, they, they, they say you're a king or you claim to be a king. And Jesus says, that's, that's the purpose of my birth. He was ruling and reigning. When he was subduing hearts on this earth, he was subduing as the king. When he calmed the raging sea, he was he was executing his kingly powers as the Lord of creation. Prophet, we can speak of that. We, priest, we can speak of that. Listen, though, as the catechism then answers what humiliation is and what exaltation is. 
Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born. It was a humiliating thing for God to take on flesh. And that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life. Some of you are undergoing miseries in this life right now. Remember, that was the purpose our Lord came, to stand in your place in everything and in every way. The wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. That's his humiliation. How about his exaltation? Christ's exaltation consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day and ascending up to heaven in sitting at the right hand of God the Father and coming to judge the world at the last day. He is the humiliated one and he is the exalted one. The incarnation, thusly, as we look here in Paul's comments, the incarnation was humiliation for the Most High God. You see that there in verse 6. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, because he was God, the form of God. That's, that's just the language of Paul and the other writers to speak of his deity, his divinity, his godness, if you will. Being in the form of God. And how long had he been in the form of God? Forever. Eternally. I and the Father are one, he said. They are not speaking of their economic functions, that is, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the work that they would carry out, but speaking of their oneness of substance. It's what the Nicene Fathers called the homoousia, the one substance. The oneness. The Father and the Son being of one substance. Then Constantinople came along in 381 and the Holy Spirit, they rightly recognized that they need to, they need to attribute homoousia to the Holy Spirit as well. The one, they are one substance. They are one. He was always God. And in his relation to the Father, he was always the Son. He didn't become the Son, but it was always the Son. Just as the Holy Spirit was always the third person in relation to the Father and the Son, was proceeding from the Father and the Son eternally, they all had their relationship to one another, and it was a divine relationship. It was a perfect relationship. It was sinless. Of course, by definition, God is sinless. Being of human form. And notice what it says. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And what does that mean? Well, it, it means pretty much just what you would think. Once you get past the idea of trying to grasp it with your mind, that's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is that being the form of God is not something you can just take on. Well, 
This, by the way, speaks to early heresies in the church. Some of the early heresies were that uh, this, was a, this, was a, this was a considerably good and talented man, this Jesus of Nazareth. And he was so exemplary. And this is following, again, from the Greek tradition. He was so exemplary and so wonderful and so perfect. In fact, his parents just couldn't, couldn't find anything wrong with him that God took some special interest in him and adopted him as his son. And so he, he took on some divine attributes because of what God did for him. And what Paul's saying here is that's not the case. In fact, that's not even possible for a human being to take on divine attributes. Uh, but what is taking place here is that the divine took on human. Can't work the other way around. Paul's clear on that. But God could become man. And that's what Paul's saying here. Jesus came into this world and he didn't think equality with God was something that could be grasped. Men try it, don't they? All through history, men have tried to, to take hold of divinity and, 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 and clothe themselves with, with divinity, with divine attributes. I mean, that's what the Tower of Babel was all about, isn't it? Uh, well, let's get more simple. That's what the Garden of Eden was all about. It was Adam and Eve seeking to be like God. Was that not the temptation that Satan brought before them? He just knows that if you eat of this tree, you're going to be like him. So the temptation for Adam and Eve was to be God. And we fall prey to that. And we even say it sometimes. Who do you think you are, God? when we pretend to, to expound upon things that we probably don't have any business speaking of or addressing. Or sometimes we address things that we don't know enough about to speak to them, at least not properly. Jesus knew it was not right and not proper and not even possible for anyone to grasp hold of deity. So now if that burst anyone's bubble in this room that you're not going to become a little God in heaven, I'm glad because you need to get over that delusion. We will always be creatures. We will always be humans in heaven. Now, some of you all right now saying, no wings? I don't get to be an angel? No. That's another bad theology that TV has uh, really made popular in recent decades. No, you don't get to be an angel either. You're always going to be a man. But that's off point. Back to the point. Jesus says that no one can 
become God. But, verse 7 says, and that adversative there stands out starkly, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So, while it's not possible for man to grasp hold and take deity, it is possible for the eternal Son, the second person, the Godhead, it, it was possible for him to take hold of humanity. For him to become man, to take the form of man, to become a servant, to be born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So let's consider those things that he did. There's so much there, but time only allows. Let's look. He veiled his majesty. He made himself nothing. That's what it means. He made himself nothing. He, he all, what the human flesh did is it veiled the reality of who he was as the eternal God, the second person of the Godhead. Listen to William Cunningham. William Cunningham is one of these men that I recommend uh, to, to every student of theology and, and church history. Cunningham lived in the 19th century, Scottish uh, father of the Free Church of Scotland. Uh, not only a, a, a splendid theologian, but a remarkable uh, writer of devotional materials as well. Cunningham said this, of this passage, he, Christ, emptied himself as the scriptures speak, of the glory from which eternity he had possessed, it was veiled or obscured. That's what it means to be emptied. Not that he ceased being God, but that he veiled his glory. And every once in a while that glory would pop out, wouldn't it? You know, the deity would just come to the forefront. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory came through completely. He gave them for just those few minutes, those few select men on the Mount, he, they saw the glory that we're going to see. That John, the apostle, saw and recorded for us in the book of Revelation. The glory which from eternity it possessed was veiled so as to be no longer visible to those with whom in his condition of poverty he associated. He appeared simply as a man in the lowest class of those intelligent creatures when he had himself created, while formerly he had been worshipped as God, raised infinitely above the highest archangel. His infinite power and wisdom were no longer put forth so fully and so palpably to promote his own happiness and comfort, to protect himself from his enemies, and to advance his own purposes. He became frail and helpless and dependent. That's what Paul's saying here. He became frail and helpless and dependent. And why did he have to do that? Because you and I are frail and helpless and dependent. And he became the form of man, the likeness of men, humbled himself so that he might stand in our place. That's the reason the book of Hebrews can say that he then, 
experienced our experiences so that he then can have sympathy with us in all of our experiences. He can sympathize with the struggles of a single mother. He can sympathize with the cancer-ridden person. He can understand the one going through grief of death. Remember? Lazarus, he wept. So he took on flesh, took the form of man. Now don't be misled here. Some early church fathers trying to, trying to defend the eternality and the deity of the Savior said, well, surely he, and having a, a, a tint of that Greek mistake that matter was bad, matter was evil. You know, this is matter, okay? The flesh is evil. And so they said, well, he couldn't have taken on flesh. Then he would have become a sinner like us. And so he just appeared to be. Those were the docetics, the Gnostics. He just had the appearance of a man. John addressed that in 1 John 1, didn't he? He says, we touched him and we handled him. In other words, John said, we hugged on him. We put our arms around him. He shook our hand. We ate with him. We know he was real. He really did take on flesh and blood. Notice he humbled himself. He took the form of a servant. He came not to be served, but to serve, he told his disciples. The high king of heaven to serve. He who is master of all became a servant to all. He did our work for us. That's what the point is. He was a servant. He was a slave. He did our work for us. We're required to do it, but guess what? We can't. God requires perfection. And we can't be perfect. And so he gave us his son, a slave in our place, to do perfect for us. That's good news, isn't it? Because if he didn't, we all stand condemned without hope. But he did. He's the servant. He stood in our place and did it all for us. He was born in the likeness of men or found in the human form, simply confirming that he was born in the likeness of men. And this is just further evidence as Paul's piling it up here, born in the likeness of men, that he took our place in this life. And then notice what he did. He died. He became obedient to the point of death. And then it explains, Paul explains, even death by a cross. Now that was significant in his time. That would have meant he suffered the most heinous death for the most heinous crimes. Our sins are most heinous. Your lies, your untruths, I'll let you distinguish between that and a lie, but we do, don't we? That wasn't a lie, I just didn't quite tell the truth. That's a lie. Our adultery, 
And whether this is physical or in our minds, Jesus says, doesn't matter, it's breaking the law, is all treason against the Most High God. And he suffered on the cross for all those terrible, heinous, treasonous sins. That's why Paul adds death on a cross. This was not, this was not death for a man who, well, he didn't do anything too bad. No, if you went to the cross, you'd done something really bad. Jesus took our place. Not that he had done anything really bad, but he took our place because we had done plenty bad. He's humiliated. He came and humbled himself. So when we think about the Incarnation, that's what we're supposed to be thinking about. But notice Paul doesn't end there. He was exalted. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him. Therefore, that's interesting, isn't it? Because Jesus did all of this. God exalted him. He lifted him up. He put him on the pedestal, as it were. What a pedestal. The throne at his right hand is the pedestal of the Most High King. God exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus he will save his people from their sins. Every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So there we have, in brief fashion, the humiliation and the exaltation. That's who our Savior is as prophet, priest, and king. Turn with me back to Romans 8. And we'll finish with this. Start reading with me in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? I hope you have that one memorized and and you think of it often. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How, you, how, how do you come to be in Christ Jesus? By grace, through faith, in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For, here's where I want us to pick up. Now this, this helps you understand. This links us back to Philippians 2. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. How? How did God do that? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things 
of the Spirit. God has done what the law could not do. How? By sending his own son to be born in the likeness of men, to suffer, to die, to live a servant's perfect life. That's who our Savior is. That's what he's done for us. That's how much he loved us. So when we read, for God so loved the world, he gave his son. When we read that God loved us and gave himself for us, that's what Paul's talking about. How do you not love a Savior like that? How can we have small thoughts about such a great Savior? Well, just because we're sinners. And so we need to repent. And we need to turn back to the center. And who are we going to find at the center every time? Christ. In His humiliation and in His exaltation. What He's done for us and what He's doing for us now. And what He shall do for us. It's too easy, isn't it, for us? One last little note. It's too easy for us to think much about the past of what Christ has done. And we may even think a good deal about what He's doing for us now as our, intercess, our interceding one. But we need to also remember the words of Christ that we are to look up, that our redemption draws near. Paul said that it's closer now than it was. And if he could say it then, you and I can certainly say it now. And so with John, those, some of the last words of the revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you. And on this, the, the end of the year... Lord's Day, that's our prayer. That our Savior would come and be glorified in the midst of a people who say little things about Him and make little of Him. May we not be among them. May we go day to day speaking high and lofty words and having high and lofty thoughts about our Savior he deserves it. And so may our love grow for him as we do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.